0: Welcome to episode 107 of Running Matters Podcast. I'm your host Paul Hudfield and today I have the pleasure of interviewing one of Sydney's top physiotherapists Steve Davey. Now Steve has a wealth of experience, been a physiotherapist for over 20 years. Uh, he's the principal and owner at Mossman Physio and Sports Injury Centre and over, over his time as a physio he's uh, worked with you know, some some amazing sort of sporting teams, including the Sydney Swans, Manly Sea Eagles. He's worked with Football Federation Australia and Gymnastics Australia, uh, so he certainly yeah, got got a, a wealth of experience and, and does a lot of work with Pace Athletic and their running running club over there. So certainly has a huge amount of knowledge in the running space. So today we sort of discuss in pretty in depth uh, the idea of loading and injury management. Uh, And and he's certainly got some great tools and advice in that respect. We also get into when interventions like cortisone, PRP, shockwave therapy, oral anti-inflammatories are useful and and what style of injury they are useful for. uh, We we get some great advice on and what else you can be doing outside of your running in order to stay uh, well-loaded and injury-free. Things like sleeping, nutrition, et cetera, are covered pretty extensively here. So some great stuff, some great gems and knowledge to pick out of this interview, and um, I've known Steve for a very long time, been mates forever, and so yeah, it was a, it's a real great chance to catch up and, uh, and talk shop. And before we get started, I'd like to thank our podcast partners, Me, Allied Health, Basecamp, Altitude, Fractel, Goo Energy, Running Matters Coaching, Raid Light, Ranulla, Cronulla Beer Co., and Coda Nutrition. So don't forget to jump on and check out our Running Matters podcast discount codes with those guys. And now without further ado, we'll get Steve on and talk some running shop. Okay. Welcome to the show, Steve Davey.
1: How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Got good you on good up, for, a, uh, for an evening with the fire on and a glass of red. Oh, good, good, good.
0: The, uh, the sponsor's product over there, I imagine. I've got a, a cold Cronulla Beer Co sitting in my lap right now.
1: I'm sure they do a tasty Shiraz as well.
0: <laughs> they could. They could. Get <laughs> on a that goody. Um, So, mate, you've been a sports physio for over 20 years now. It's a bloody long time and seen an incredible amount of injuries in that time. Have our injuries evolved over that time or are we essentially operating with the same human machine and finding the same weak points in the chain? Oh,
1: that's a very big question, Hadfield. Just a, um, just a quick version then. Uh, so so the the long and the short of it is is that there are always patterns that we see in um in in all kinds of injuries that we uh that we assess and treat um but there are also always individual differences um that are Oh, I had this discussion with a with a with a client today, actually, that are the, the 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 um where where the amalgamation of the science and the art comes in, because mm. the bottom line is is that um, there's a whole lot of science and evidence based behind what we do, and then there's a whole lot of art form that comes with um, the the experience of having seen two and a half thousand of them versus four of them. You know, it's uh it, it's it's it can't it, it cannot be denied that there is a difference between um, between experience and inexperience, when it comes to the number of times you've seen the way the number of different people have reacted to the same thing that you've done, mm-hmm. because that's the way the evidence has directed you. Um, and I think uh, I think that's a geez, that's a soapbox that I could jump on every day of the week. But yeah. um, but I think the reality is is that if if we can continue to recognise patterns. And then um, uh, hone in on individual uh, specific uh, changes uh, in the person that's sitting in front of you. Then we can be um, what we like to call now evidence informed. Yeah, okay. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at what the evidence tells us and be aware of the way that is directing our evidence based practice model and still be aware of the fact that the person in front of you is an individual who was highly likely not involved in those studies <laughs> where the evidence informed us, you know, because, because every person is an individual, every person does respond a little bit differently. And we, we just need to be able to, um, to take that on board with that group of injuries that we see. And, and I think um, uh, to get back on, on track a little bit and, and off the soapbox, There's been a huge amount of um, crazy over the last two years now with changes in training volumes and loads because gyms have been shut down, people have been having to run, people have been walking their dogs a whole lot more. And when we talk about the spectrum between uh, the weekend warrior versus the elite athlete, Mm. training regimes have changed in a way that um, we would never have expected that to happen in the past so I think, um, I think uh, we're seeing a whole lot more of people who are coming in with these um, uh, not acute injuries, but um, change in load and volume of training injuries, even though they don't think they've changed a great deal, their patterns have changed in a massive way and, um, and, and, and we're seeing the fallout for it. And so... We see that in a wide range of different injuries and um, the big ones are tendon and bone loading because they're the the ones that really react um, enormously to changes in load, Um, but we're probably seeing less of the uh, hammy and calf strains and probably over the last two years because football seasons have been pretty truncated. Um, There's not been the same ACL rates and, and MCL rates and just even acute ankle sprains because People have been doing different stuff, and it's um, it's, it's pretty topical at the moment about what we are seeing um, and how we are shifting what we're doing rehab-wise in terms of that group of injuries.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I was going to ask you about COVID a bit more specifically there, but uh, you've certainly answered that that question. And
1: and I've got way more I can say.
0: That's all right. No, no, there's plenty of time. There's plenty of time. Yeah, that's good. What, what, what about, I guess, over that period of time, the impact of maybe a more sedentary lifestyle and sedentary jobs in terms of that sort of loading aspect? Have you seen a change in that over your experience?
1: Yeah, massively. And I think, um, I think again, that sort of plays into the same thing that we were talking about, is the change in, um, a change in loading is going to affect your injury risk one way or another. Um, whether or not it's an acute spike in lots more impact loading because, again, there were periods there where uh, gyms weren't open and there was, there was no um, uh, availability of just, for some people anyway, of just doing general or specific strength work if they didn't happen to have a set of weights at home or didn't happen to have um, the, the availability for them at home. Um, and I think those those people then um, sat on one or the other side of the COVID fence, and that is they either sat and did nothing and and, and deteriorated in that um, uh, re- overall reduction in load, or they they ran every day instead mm-hmm. and. And their bodies were not prepared for going from, for example, a, a two-day-a-week running program with a three-day-a-week gym program, which is perfectly acceptable for the weekend warrior, um, probably better than what most weekend warriors do, to thinking, shit, I better do something every day because I used to do every, something every day of the week anyway, so I'll just run because I've got nothing else that I can do. Yeah. Um and so, and so there was a spike in the uh, overuse, um, and I'll, I'll um, uh, another physio who, who does podcasts and this sort of stuff and this sort of thing coined a really cool phrase, I'm not sure if it was COVID related, it might have been before COVID, of the um, underuse, sorry, overuse versus underprepared syndrome yep. um, and, and whether or not we're calling these overuse injuries that we used to think were happening all the time more as a result of just doing too much or not being prepared, that is, the, uh, the underprepared for the particular type of exercise that we're, we're actually throwing at people. Mm. And I think um, I think we had both of those um, in, the, in the COVID period where there was a bunch of people who were doing stuff that was just completely different. Um, but trying to keep up their volumes and, and they were getting buggered in the same way as the overload uh, continuum that we used to know and, and love. And then there was the other people who did nothing for months on end um, because their gyms were closed and then went back to it as soon as the gyms opened and, and ended up with a very, very underprepared uh, type injury. Mm. Um, and so we, I think we saw both of those. Uh, and amongst all of that, a lot of those people were then sitting in front of a computer all day. And um, I think I think the working from home pandemic um, had its own issues for the vast majority of those workers. And again, it will be one of the people, people took that uh, in one of two ways. They either found themselves and it was probably, to be honest, the really diligent workers saying, well, I'm at home now. And I've really got to prove that I can still do my daily workload and be efficient and effective in um, in the same workday kind of hours. But I'm sitting here, and my dog's just there, and I can go and make myself a coffee just there, and I can go and watch a bit of Netflix in the background, and um, and still need to prove themselves that being um, both efficient and effective from, in a working from home environment. And those guys uh, either sat all day and didn't move as much as they were in the office or they enjoyed the freedom of being at home and did way more exercise than they would usually do. And they um, they put their work hours in times that it, that it worked for them and I think those guys, the, the ones who spread their work hours out and their workplaces allowed them to do that, they didn't need to be online from 9 to 5, they, they probably did better because I think we, we saw a bunch of people who um, didn't just sit in front of their computer 9 till 5 because that's what their workplace said, but they were the um, almost the nervous work-from-home types that actually sat in front of their computer from 7 till 10 and didn't move. Um, And they literally didn't move. They might have gone up and had a piss break at some point and and gone and got a drink of water. But um, that group of people uh, sat still much longer than they would in a normal work day. And I think um, uh, you and I both probably didn't see the middle ground. We saw the extremes of both. We saw the people who sat all day and didn't move. And we saw the people who went and overexercised because they could and it wasn't gym, so it was different stuff to what they're used to, and um, and all of a sudden you've got these both uh, overuse and underprepared syndrome going at both ends of the spectrum. Mm. So um, yeah, with I the guess health, they healthcare, healthcare sort of slide
0: into each other, sort of pretty neatly. The over underprepared, overuse kind of stuff. Then I guess part for of sure kind of continuing. And, and I think
1: as a result, healthcare ended up being stupidly busy in this period of the pandemic and um, uh, despite uh, the, the fear of coming into health clinics that, that was pretty rife for a while there, um, uh, that's what we saw. We, we, um, we didn't have enough appointments at the huddle. We, didn't, we, didn't, we, couldn't, we almost couldn't cope with the demand and we're a pretty busy clinic at the best of times and we were just, we were snowed under yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with this kind of stuff going on.
0: Yeah, sort it yeah, definitely kept us afloat yeah very very comfortably during that period of time and i guess we saw i guess that like i say that middle ground I think people actually put that situation to good use and were healthier for it in general terms but I guess talking about that um, that group that sat from 7 to 10 p.m that you're talking about um I'd like to extrapolate the specific issues that they had i guess in terms of a running Athlete, I mean, running matters. Podcast, we have got to talk about runners. So, why does why does sitting from seven to ten PM sort of increase your your risk of injury? There, uh,
1: again, there's there's quite a few components to that, and the uh, the the first one is is uh, I guess simple changes in in um, uh, even tissue mobility. Uh, we know that there. There are a bunch of people, and uh, and again, I, I stress that it's not everyone, that sitting every day for long periods of time, um, seven till 10 is obviously a, a massive amount of time, but, um, but there were people uh, coming in and out of my practice that were doing that, that uh, already had sort of some uh, pre-existing issues with the way their body worked, and quite often that is the... Um, Pretty commonplace, uh, lack of uh, specific glute activation ability, shortened, tighten, hip flexors, and essentially what you're doing by sitting all day is putting yourself in a position where those those couple of things that can go wrong pretty readily in office workers just go more wrong. Mm -hmm. So they find themselves... I do hate to use the term lazy glutes. it's not so much that it's that it's that their brains do actually um, not get as efficient at driving their bodies forward off a stance phase in gait uh, as to what they used to do because their their glute, particularly the extension component of their glute max is um, is sitting in a, a lengthened and inactive, position for longer and longer periods of a day. And if you flip it around to the other side of the hip joint, uh, which is clearly pretty important when you're running um, your hip flexors, uh, which again, I'll, I'll talk about as a group rather than as individual muscles, because there are a bunch of them. Uh, are sitting in a a relatively shortened position and they are allowed to shorten and tighten when you sit for long periods of time mm-hmm. and of course there are ways of of mitigating these these risks and uh, just you know getting up and doing a couple of glute activation exercises and stretching out hip flexors would work in, in in nine out of ten cases but it's uh, it's probably the the other guys that it doesn't work for or that do that for weeks on end than then try and go and do what was their regular program that becomes the problem. So I think I think that's a that's a that's a big component of what we see goes wrong in runners is they lose um, lose a little bit of strength just simply from the fact that they're being inactive for those amounts of time in a day where they wouldn't usually. And and again, even just getting up out of your chair and doing a lap around the office, going to get a drink of water or s- Send a fax. Do people still send faxes? We do in healthcare um, at, the, at the fax machine and uh, photocopy something and flirt with a chick at the desk and all of those sort of bits and pieces. To we do that in healthcare as well? So, yeah. Can we do that in healthcare as well? Oh, no. It's unacceptable <laughs> in healthcare. Um, okay. But, um, but that, that that movement around the office, actually, even if that was only once an hour, is a big difference to sitting still literally for eight, ten 10. 14 hours at a time, mm-hmm. which is what we were seeing uh, certainly um, uh, percentage-wise more of during the pandemic because, I mean, that stuff, again, it's not that it didn't happen pre-pandemic. Uh, it's just that it was much more rare and people were forced a little bit more into these kind of things while um, while being, um, uh, being forced to work from home and to find other, other ways of being productive during the day. And, and I think, as I said, that was, was pretty divisive. I think some people did it really well and some people did it really badly and some people went over the top as well. Um, but it meant that um, it meant that these, these these issues that we know are apparent in, in activity um, probably uh, became a little bit more uh, apparent in a bigger percentage of the general population anyway. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: And um, so, like uh, pandem- pandemic aside, I mean, there's been an apparent boom in recreational running. Have you noticed that across your your practice in terms of an uptick in the typical running-based injury coming into the, the practice?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I think um, particularly including the pandemic, you know, I think there's a lot more people who who found their way towards running as a regular um, effective form of exercise when they wouldn't have done that before. They might've been more gym goers, but um, necessity forced them to do something which ended up being running um, with the closure of gyms and and whatnot. And so whether or not we're talking about um, the the standard and, and regular increase in recreational runners versus uh, and, and things like park run, which is r- taken off everywhere like the, 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 the park runs around the place are getting busier and busier as far as I can see and, um, and encouraging um, uh, non-athletes to take up running in a, a relatively safe and I won't sort of say completely monitored but but um, but at least somewhat monitored version of, what what we would like to see in the community, and then and then there's the um, the people who go from that recreational to elite kind of runner. Um, we see uh, a, a certainly a broad spectrum of what happens injury wise there. So, for example, um, the fifty to sixty year old male who has run in his past and feels like he's bulletproof anyway because he goes to the gym five times a week, and then couldn't goes and starts doing a bit more running, those guys are dead set certainties for Achilles tendinopathies. We see them all the time. That's a really, really common one. I think um, the kids that uh, got forced out of um, football training and netball training and any other kind of training while all that stuff wasn't going on, or the kids that were anyway um, avid avid runners uh, that weren't getting their regular training have just gone and sort of taken it to another level. And those guys... I think, again, in that, um, that age group divide, they tend to get more of the bony stress disorders than the middle-aged adult who tends to get more, more tendon overload type problems. But, but what we see typically is, again, a change in load, whether that's stepping up significantly on what you're used to or whether that's having a period where you've dropped off and then trying to pick up where you where left off. Both of those things are, are overload or underprepared kind of injuries, where in the skeletally mature, it certainly seems to be more directed towards the tendon type problems whereas in the skeletally immature it does tend to be more bony overload and and again obviously there is a there is a crossover there it doesn't mean if you're 25 you can't get a stress fracture in your in your shin from running um, but it is a little bit more likely to be the younger guys that get that uh, than the older guys and, and that that's the spectrum that we're seeing anyway in the clinic.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, specific to that—that that guy who's fifty to sixty year old, because geez, I'm getting closer and closer to that age group. Why, why Not would I as me? <laughs> why <laughs> are we getting specific Achilles tendonitis? Is it a you know lack of calf strength over time, or why, why that area?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a it's um, a really good question, uh, and I think um, there's. Again, a broad range of answers to the why. Uh, I think, I think in particular, what we know about um, the calf come, Achilles' come push-off mechanism, which which really does include a number of other things um, uh, in, the, in the mix, but, but we won't necessarily delve into that now because the Achilles is such a such a such an obvious one. Um, is that uh, in that middle-aged male, um, we we often get uh, a as a as a activity level spike. we often get that uh, soreness in the Achilles, usually the the morning after, rather than during the run, uh, and on the startup of getting out of your chair and starting to walk around for a while, or getting up first thing in the morning, and feeling that you're all of a sudden taking your Achilles back to its what we'll call its neutral length when your foot is at 90 degrees to your shin um, and, uh, and the, the, the structure of the tendon uh, not being uh, able to cope with these changes in length and load. Um, I, think, I think there's a, a growing body of evidence that says that if there wasn't a rapid increase in the volume, intensity, terrain changes, footwear changes of your 50 to 60-year-old male in particular, because these guys cop it a lot, um, then there was a drop-off in load and an acceleration in load because Achilles tendinopathy doesn't happen for no reason. Um, So, And that drop-off in load might be that they, um, again, I, I hate to keep referring to the pandemic, but the, the the isolation for a week is enough to do it, right? Yeah. So we 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 talk frequently about uh, this ac- acute to chronic workload ratio, which is. The acute load is um, is is the work you have done in the last week, which sort of represents your 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 fatigue status mm-hmm. versus your chronic load, which is um, a, a reflection on your level of fitness for for one of a better word. That is, how much of a base have you built over the last four weeks, for example?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you take your acute to your chronic load um, and you make them a, a, a ratio of how much work have you done over the last four weeks uh, divided by four and then compared to the last week, are you sitting somewhere between what what, um, what the, the researchers who have a lot more time than me say is the sweet spot, which is between 80% of what you've been doing over the last four weeks and 130% of what you've been doing over those last uh, uh, four weeks. Mm-hmm. And... If you're sitting in that sweet spot, then the likelihood of you having what we refer to as a preventable non-contact soft tissue injury is down to about 5%, which is great. It's about as small as it gets. If you drop below 80%, it goes to about 5 to 7%. If you go above 130%, it escalates really quickly. So We know that there's a sweet spot in that kind of loading for whether we're talking about um, uh, tendinopathic change or uh, even, even to a degree, the calf and hammy twinges that you get, or uh, or, or the the bony overload, uh, which puts you onto that stress fracture continuum, um, there is a sweet spot for training so that you can see pretty clearly. And uh, and, and the AOS re- released a really good document on the the effect of detraining effect uh, back in 2016, uh, which which just showed how long it really takes to get you back to a reasonable level of training after you've had something as little as a week off. And there's, um, there's an enormous percentage of the population at the moment that has a week off impact loading because suddenly their wife or their daughter or their son or their cat gets COVID and they have to stay at home for a week. Um, Presumably the cat can pass it on too. Uh, Then they, they, they need to back off their training volume and it's, it's really hard to get the same kind of impact load when you're confined to four walls. Uh, Even if you're doing a lot of strength work, it's hard to get the same kind of impact load if you're not allowed to go out and run around the block for a couple of weeks or a week as the case may be. And so that, that has a really big effect on the way you build back into your training and, and how much time you need to spend building back into that training to prevent what, um, uh, again, there was, there was some, uh, some good data from rugby league players on, on the detraining effect uh, where they don't expect their injuries in the next one or two weeks, but somewhere in the next 10 to 15 days after a drop-off or a spike in training load, they expect that they, if they don't moderate their loading as a result of that drop-off or spike, that they will expect an increased risk of, of one of these preventable soft tissue injuries. And in something like the Cricket Fast Bowlers, um, again, some, some very um, well-constructed research was done to show that they can be in 21 to 28 days following the, the either drop-off or spike in training load where they end up um, succumbing to one of these injuries. Mm-hmm. So, so I think um, for the general population – and, and what, what we're talking about there is elite-level athletes. So for the – general population, the weekend warriors, and even it certainly doesn't excuse the elite level runners. When you have a week off of normal training, you actually ha- it actually has to make uh, you have to make an adjustment to your next three to four weeks worth of training to get yourself back into that sweet spot of the 80 to 130 percent of what you averaged over the former four weeks. Because it makes such a big dent in it when you don't work regularly. You can't see my fingers in inverted commas uh, for the last four weeks, even if it was only one week off makes a big difference.
0: Great information. And I think that's really easily applicable to people. And one of the frustrations, I guess, as a practitioner you have when people keep searching for the thing that they did in the last two days as to why they have an injury. Whereas yeah. as you're suggesting, it's probably something that happened two, potentially three or four weeks prior to that. So.
1: Yeah. I reckon we've got evidence now that says it's between seven day, seven and 28 days. It's a big window right um and that's that's looking in some elite sport populations but but all of our bodies do respond in a pretty similar way to that and they are differing elite sport populations but just had this discussion with um with the gymnastics australia squad at the moment about how they need to be monitoring that load and being mindful of the fact that um if their load does spike in a training camp type situation or if it does drop off in a in a forced isolation type scenario, their training, their regular training volumes, whether it's uh, an elite gymnast, uh, an elite rugby league player, cricket player, or a recreational runner um, actually needs to be varied over the next three to four weeks to mitigate the risk of one of these preventable non-contact soft tissue injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's important for everyone. I don't think that's only elite sport.
0: No, 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 that's that's – just straight loading stuff that's that's perfect and, and i yeah. guess even without the you know taking a week off for whatever reason that you stay between that 80 and 130 percent of your your tolerance is is a big important sort of step that people need to look at as well in, in terms of their their loading and we, we talk about this sort of i guess 10 percent rule of loading you know week to, yeah. week to week sort of stuff and that's going to keep you within that framework i guess but um, it's it's just another good reason to think about that really seg- segmented gradual progression. Yeah.
1: Hundred percent, and I think um, I think that that ten percent rule is a is a good uh, guideline. But the eighty to one hundred and thirty of the chronic load, um, I think what what we find it gives. Um, I won't say just the elite end of the spectrum, but but all. All uh, athletic trainers, whether we're talking about runners or footy players or cricketers or whatever, or, or gymnasts for that matter, um, it gives a spectrum to allow uh, a slightly harder and faster load accumulation phase um, where uh, when you are some. Stum- weeks, that is greater than four, uh, so a month or more away from, for example, an, an event that you're training for, mm-hmm. it gives you an opportunity to be able to accumulate that load and build what we're calling that chronic load a little faster. It means that even though that 10% rule is, 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 is pretty, um, uh, I'll say safe, it's pretty safe to build up by 10%, uh, uh, loading volume per week um, but I think that this gives us an opportunity to push that a little bit harder when for example you know that your 100k ultra marathon is in eight weeks time and you've been a little bit underdone because you've had COVID or, or been isolated or there's been less volume available to you or the bloody rain. I, I hope if your listeners live in Sydney, then they, they know that there has been a little bit less opportunity to go on trail run when there's been landslides and and, and mud and rain everywhere. Um, and it, don't get me wrong, it's not that you can't run in the rain, but there are differences in the way you run uh, and how much volume you might get under your belt in a period where where the weather, particularly in Sydney, has been, been crap lately. Um, and so all of those little things might say, well, I've got a... I've got 100K in two months' time, uh, and it's on a trail and it's, it's going to be brutal, whichever way you look at it. Then I need to progress myself by more than 10% per week over the next couple of weeks. And I think that um, that sweet spot between the 80 and 130% allows for a little bit more of that load accumulation mm. so that you can then just drop yourself off a little bit and have an appropriate taper period so that your, again, chronic load, your level of fitness and the load that you've accumulated over the prior four weeks to whichever week we're talking about is high. Like it it, it should be as high as you can get it without pushing yourself into an injury risk area But your acute load, that is your 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 measurement of fatigue in a very basic sense, is as low as is humanly possible, because that's what we call competition readiness. Whether you're a gymnast or a fast bowler or a 100k runner, you know we want maximum chronic load with minimum acute load equals. Ideal competition readiness, uh, and that's the idea, the idea behind a um, a taper period uh, for whatever sport you're talking about, is um, is to reduce the fatigue but maximise the fitness leading into the event. And I think I, I don't think there's a better example of that than in um, the the you know the ultra marathon trail runners where they they've already got a big base that has been built um, over months. Um, the problem for those guys is when they end up with a layoff period and they can't keep their load up there and have to make adjustments to literally the next three or four weeks in load. Otherwise, they risk that injury. Um, the, the injury risk goes through the roof and they can tape a period. And again, running hard right up to the uh, event day, um, I, I think is not sensible. But doing nothing right up to the event day is clearly not sensible either. There's a there's a sweet spot in there that we want people to sit in, where chronic load as high as possible, acute load as low as possible, equals competition readiness, whatever that competition is.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. And, and you know, the main reason why most ultra marathon runners do their their massive long week, you know, three weeks out, sort of stuff. You know, they've still yeah. got chronic load going on there. And um, we'll talk about, I guess, more, more loading stuff. we we'll talk a little bit of bone stress injury. Um, it seems to be, I guess, more and more prevalent. And we're over-diagnosing this stuff compared to a previous generation of runners. Are the diagnostic sort of images better, or should we have been picking these things up before?
1: Uh, I think there's a little from column A and a little from column B. I think, uh, I think we're, we're definitely better at it. There's no question about that. Um, even, even just down to the availability of healthcare and MRIs and, and, and bone scans for hotspots and all of this sort of stuff. Um, average, average Joe can walk in to uh, a physio or uh, a GP and say, this is because there's so much more information available. This is what I've been doing. I think I might have this. And um, your GP will certainly facilitate Um, investigation your physio uh, and allied health practitioner might say well we don't we don't even need that investigation because we know what's going on right now just by the way that you're you're assessing Um, and so that part of it has definitely improved out of sight I think um, I think the the column B that we're talking about is that there there is a, a whole lot more recreational runners and there's while there's a whole lot more information out there about how to do that right, I think there's a whole lot more. Um, uh, maybe individuals thinking that they're a bit more bulletproof than they are, and, and they're just getting out there and having a crack. And I think there's a there's a bit more of that. Again, I would I would argue that that is a little bit more pandemic related than anything else, uh, where there's been a sort of almost a, a a forced increase in running because because you could, um, and so. I also think that in days gone by, there may have been a little bit less of the, um, I reckon I can push through this. I reckon we're a little bit less sensible nowadays. Um, So uh, people now say, I'm quite aware of the fact that this could be a really big problem. And if I end up pushing this pretty localized periostitis in my uh, in the medial border of my shin bone um, into a stress fracture, then I'm out and I really can't run for probably definitely six, maybe up to 12 weeks. Then if I back out now and do the right thing by it and seek the advice from the professionals that are around and readily available at the moment, then, then, then yeah, they, um, they get back on track a little bit quicker. So there's a little bit more of that um, uh, caution because they don't want to miss out on everything. There's a little bit more of that our investigation techniques are better. There's a little bit more um, uh, public awareness of, of, of how much stuff can go wrong because as you say there has been an explosion in recreational running and, and, um, and I think a, a lot more um, as the internet has shown us information availability for better or for worse um, that at least tells people if you've got this, maybe you should go and get that checked out by a professional. Uh, whereas in the past, it was either, a, well, I'm just going to stop doing that running, or I'm going to keep pushing that until I become a a cripple and I, I literally can't run anymore. Yeah. So I think I think we said again, as as with most things, both ends of that spectrum, and uh, and probably just a a, a generally better educated. Population mm-hmm. as to what they should and shouldn't do once they start to get these problems. Yeah. So um, I think the, the the answer one of the answers to that is is that I think over the sort of twenty odd years that I've been in private practice, I I still see plenty of uh, navicular and um and tibial stress injury, bony stress injuries in runners, but I see far less of the femoral neck stress injuries that we used to see period back there, maybe 10, 15 years ago, where we actually used to see them quite frequently. Mm. Um, and that definitely wasn't pandemic related, right? It was a well and truly before that. Um, but uh, I don't think we see that, that that as much anymore. I think people are better educated to to what can really go wrong in those bony stress injury uh, circumstances. Whereas I think the general public still are a little bit blasé about what uh, they call shin splints, which is just on that Bony stress continuum, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I and I think it's it's dumbed down a little bit in the popular media, um, but it's it's still a bony stress disorder that can become a bony stress fracture.
0: Yep, yeah, for sure. And, and I guess uh, in in terms of the people that have sought help with the you know the distal or foot foot based stress stress reactions, how often are you putting these people in boots? It seems like it's a, a A pretty I guess impressive accessory these days for the for the runner
1: yeah I um my uh, as per usual my answer is multifaceted I think that there are plenty of people that will walk in with a really low grade bone stress injury that I am confident in the right kind of person doesn't need a boot but I'm equally confident in the wrong kind of person does need a boot. Uh, and, th- and that's the bottom line. If that person can convince me that they are sensible and they're not going to say, oh, he didn't give me a boot. So that means I must be able to run. Um, <laughs> then, 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 then I'm, I'm, I'm clearly missing the mark. Whereas if, um, if that person comes in and I know that they're going to go and run, if I don't stick him in a boot, then I'm going to stick him in a boot every day of the week. So I think um, I think uh, the vast majority of bony stress injuries, um, and, and I might qualify that, bony stress injuries that haven't yet breached uh, uh, the cortex uh, of the bone, I don't think they need to be managed in the boot. I think, I think we can get away with not putting them in a boot in a sensible person. And again, um, I'm not gonna paint everyone with the same brush. So I'm gonna treat it on an individual basis. But the 18 to 25 year old males are terrible for this. They're just an awful, awful group who think that they are better than the science um, and and stronger because in lots of ways they are. But the reality is if they've already started on that bony stress continuum and they don't, and they are not able to relatively rest. And I I use that term um, very specifically because I know those guys are not going to do nothing. I know, I know we need to give them something to fill their void because um, uh, we won't get into a testosterone debate now, but those guys are full of some stuff that they need to let off. And if it's not gonna be by running, it needs to be by something else. Um, and so uh, if, if I don't make them stop running by sticking them in a boot, then I need to give them a, a lot of really good other reasons why they shouldn't be impact loading their bony stress injury at the moment. Um, and, and mostly that is, that is cold hard threats on, um, on putting them back in a boot and making them non-weight bearing for a period. Because at the end of the day, if, if they breach their cortex, then they will be non-weight bearing for a period and they will be immobilized for a period. And all of a sudden the things that I will allow them to do get smaller and smaller, you know, like, like they can swim. And there's a whole bunch of people who, a whole bunch of runners in particular, who will say, "Look that! I'm not going to swim. I don't like the water, or whatever else." And um, and if that's the only thing they can do, then they they drive themselves insane pretty quickly. So um, at the early phase, at least we can still get them on a bike and get them to sweat a little bit, and get them on a rowing machine, and uh, keep their, their their heart rate being pushed and keep them doing some, some uh, strength work that is not impact loading their bony stress disorder. Because if we can get all of those things still going on and we're not just saying to them, well, sorry, you're in a boot, you're on crutches and that needs to be that way for six weeks and then we'll start rebuilding you. I think that's the worst thing you can do for particularly that 18 to 25 year old male who's gonna say, bugger off, I'm gonna go and run anyway. You know? So there's gotta be a little bit of give and take in the clinical world there's got to be a lot of uh, specifics given to the brain and the body that you are dealing with in front of you. And so I will um, very broadly say there is not one way that I treat any individual stress injury Mm -hmm. because they are all different because they are all attached to a different brain. And I think that's probably the most important point. Um, Certainly, certainly for your, your listeners is to say, if, um, if you can do the right thing at the wrong end of a bony stress injury, then it can be pretty unintrusive on your training volumes and, and what you wanna be doing. Um, and don't get me wrong, somebody with a bony stress injury is not gonna walk out the door and go for a run. That's not the idea but we can replace that with a whole bunch of other stuff. And again, uh, the reality is in these injuries is that, is that complete and utter rest is the enemy because it's just going to take us longer to build that acute on chronic workload ratio that we talked about earlier back up into the sweet spot again, um, or you're just going to come back with a problem somewhere else. Uh, and, and again, I'd, li- I'd like to be the maybe the, not the first health professional, but I'd like to be really clear here in saying that we don't want to see you. We want you to be good and capable and not continuing to drive your own injuries in the wrong direction. Um, But we do want you to listen to us. And we do want you to be able to stay as active as as humanly possible while recovering from any of these stress injuries that do require a period of what we'll call relative rest. Um, And if you're if your advice has been to completely rest, then, then you, you need to look further afield. There are always things that you can do to maintain a degree of load, even in a, a, a situation where where you've got a bony stress injury that has got beyond where you'd like it to. So there are always other options. Um, and a lot of them will will for sure be you cannot do any impact loading over that stress injury at the moment, but mm-hmm. there's other stuff you can do. And you just need to you need to talk to your health professional to talk about exactly what those things are um, yeah. because there are things out there.
0: That's good. That's good. I like that. Keep moving somehow. That's perfect. Yep. Yeah, Mate, do um, not I- completely rest. I don't know. I've, I've heard that before. It's wrong. Uh, do you think we're moving too far toward speaking of brains and being attached to them etc are are we moving too far toward brain mediated pain or you know the 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 hands-off physiotherapist we still need to focus on a tissue in lesion and an appropriate tissue healing response here or is it all brain science these days
1: yeah i'm going to give you another ridiculously broad answer Um, and that is that it depends on the brain i'm dealing with Uh, for me personally i think that there are um uh, for better or for worse, I, I had 20-odd patients back-to-back today where they're probably – I, I, I uh, happily will call myself a manual therapist. I do a lot of hands-on work, um, but I do a lot of education work and a lot of uh, conditioning-type training as well. And I think that there's probably 10 to 15% uh, on any given day that I don't need to put my hands on. Mm. Uh, and so so there is a group of those for sure that don't need manual therapy and uh, and there is no benefit to manual therapy for them. But I could take any one of those individual situation and say that particular situation in another body will require manual therapy. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to paint any one particular injury with any one brush. I do think it is is, is individual. And I do think that... Um, uh, the good news is, is that the, the the majority of us allied health professionals are experts in being able to tell that about you th- when you walk through the door. That's what a subjective examination is about. It's not just talking about what happened to this particular injury. It's getting to know exactly what that person wants out of this consultation because there are people who walk through the door and just said, um, I've got this, what can I do? And, and so it may only be a discussion about how to keep an appropriate level of load up, address deficiencies via exercise. And if there is something that is required from a manual therapy perspective, for sure do it. And then there's that exact same problem in the different person who needs um, triple the manual therapy and far less the guidance in terms of the the gradual increase in loading and and strength work over over the course. So again, it becomes a broad answer that is it is very individualized to the person who sits in front of you. Um, and it is, it is really important to treat the brain that's in front of you uh, as well as it's really important to treat the body that's in front of you. It's, it's never one or the other and it's always a combination of both. And, um, and, and we'll talk about the broad definitions of copers and non-copers that, um, that either need a little bit more hand-holding or a little bit more of a push, basically, in both of those directions, um, both of those opposite directions. And, and I think uh, when we come across those people, we discover pretty quickly because um, without blowing our own horn too much, we are experts in reading people. That's it's kind of what we do. We're not psychologists, but we just know uh, what um, individuals require out of their treatment, and the people who just want to push it further and further and further need probably a little bit more manual therapy and restraint. The people who don't want to push their exercise volume probably need a little bit more direction in the way they need to strengthen themselves to become more resilient and increase their capacity so that when they do go back into their regular training, um, that they are already at a point where their capacity um uh, outweighs what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and, and, and in that situation, we end up with a, a massive reduction in their, their injury risk and, um, and, and a bit more buy-in. You know, I think that there's still a whole lot of importance about the individual clientele's buy-in to what you're trying to get them to do and whether or not it aligns with their particular goals, it's really important that the the individual spells out what they want to achieve by coming to see uh, you or I on any individual occasion for any individual injury um, because it is different for every person.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. I like, I like the personality stuff. I like being an expert in reading people. I don't think my wife would agree with you, but... Uh...
1: Yeah, that's okay. Well, you know, I have the advantage of knowing your wife well, and I think she's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mate, uh, take a take a, a quick change of change of direction. You, you've worked a little bit with the Sydney Swans over the years. Um, in my opinion, they've uh, sort of got you know, th- these things covered in terms of injury management. They're probably some of the the best uh, and most experienced. Sporting teams in, in the country, if not the world, I, I guess. What, what can we learn from the way the Swans do things and how transferable is that to the average punter?
1: Yeah, well, I think, again, they've, they've certainly evolved even further than when I uh, had a period during my, my, my sports masters with them, which was back in sort of the, I guess, the glory days of 2008, 2009, when they had a, a, a pretty um, impeccable injury record. Um, and that was that they did some monitoring type work that was almost unheard of. And again, we've got to, we've got to remember that the AFL um, has been uh, uh, glorified with its uh, with its enormous range of injury reporting data uh, in the past anyway, and it's one of the best sporting organizations in the world for tracking and monitoring injury data over a very long period of time. Um, and so when uh, the period during my sports masters that I spent with uh, with the Sydney Swans um, was, was really at the peak of their branching into some more monitoring data, which is not unlike what we use for the average punter today. And I think that that's the the glory of it. Uh, And again, since then, it's it's become a whole lot better. And I couldn't even tell you all of the the monitoring type gear that is used these days and what their specific testing was. Um, It was certainly a little bit more simplistic back there. We're talking about, you know, the 10 to 15 years ago window. Um, But nowadays, uh, every player in every training session and every game is GPS tracked. And If we're talking about load monitoring, then that combined with um, uh, what we'll call survey data, which um, the AMS system, which is the, the athlete monitoring system, um, and, and, and all, a lot of different versions of that, um, gives a sports scientist who sits in the back room and crunches numbers all day long the ability to say that um, Uh, Buddy Franklin is, at his age, sleep level, um, loading capacity, what we've seen in his training both on and off legs, on field in game time, off field in training time, is starting to hit into our red zone. And it's a little – no, it's not a little bit more complicated. It's a lot more complicated than just the – acute to chronic workload ratio that we talked about earlier, it's not just trying to sit these elite athletes in that 80 to 130% of their, which is essentially a, a, um, a numeric of their minutes trained versus intensity of effort. There are literally thousands of other variables and multipliers that that will change where their 80 to 130% lives. And, and that's why they have a full-time sports science staff, and why every AFL club and every NRL NRL club and um, more and more in, in the, the world game of, of football internationally and certainly in the Premier League, and um, there is more and more background money being pumped into ensuring that every one of these teams can put their best team on the field every week um, because uh, we we know uh, you know Buddy missing a couple of games for the Swans with his broken finger lately is, is going to create a hole in their forward line, just like um, you know, uh, Harry Kane missing a few games for Tottenham or for England for that matter. He's a target that they need and in the same way as that any other marquee player will create a hole that needs to be filled so it's not necessarily about any one individual for this load monitoring that the the swans have been doing really well over the over the last many many years now Um, but that every elite sporting organization now is doing better and better and better and actually pumping some money into the background because um, when we're talking about players who are earning you know, particularly in the Premier League, hundreds and thousands of pounds per appearance almost, um, we don't want them sitting on the bench. We want them to be on the field doing what they're being paid to do. And that means that it's well worth our while paying a sports scientist and a team of physios and, um, uh, to, to monitor what their load is up to. And if we, if we detect spikes or if we detect drop-offs, then we appropriately adjust training loads to make sure that that those things are make as minimal an impact to the injury risk going forwards over the next three or four weeks as we possibly can because those injuries um, at the end of the day cost dollars to big clubs and uh to the recreational athlete lost lost time from training and it's um to, it's a it's a problem at both ends of those spectrum as well, uh, whether whether we're talking about the dollars lost or the inability to do what you want to do just to keep your your brain sane in a relatively insane world.
0: <laughs> and, and look, I guess it's applicability to that recreational runner. So uh, in terms of keeping within that eighty to one hundred and thirty percent, people just need to be honest with themselves in terms of. Have I been sleeping well? Do I have stress from work? Have I been eating well? They need to factor those, those portions of their life in into their load management sort of on an amateur level, I guess.
1: Yeah. So when, when we're back into the recreational athlete, we still, we still use some load monitoring data for our for our clients. And that's that you don't need to be an elite athlete to start monitoring that sort of stuff. It literally is. Um, this, uh, this acute to chronic workload ratio is a, is, is a simplistic, but really effective version of doing that. And that is, if you can, um, if you can, uh, drive yourself to say on any given day, uh, or for any given workout session that, um, uh, you, your, your, your run was 60 minutes long and it was a pretty slow pace, easy run. And, um, uh, on this uh this rate of perceived exertion scale or the modified Berg, uh, borg scale which gives you a 10 out of 10 if you are busting yourself and ready to throw up at any chance you get because you're working so hard versus a, a one out of 10 which is you know the the level of exercise you're doing that is one step above sitting on the couch watching tv Um, And if you can be pretty, uh, again, honest with yourself, as you said, because this is all down to reporting data honestly to be able to get an effective result from the data and you can make that multiplication and it's not in any particular units, it's arbitrary units because it's a time versus rate of perceived exertion and monitor that for your training schedule over a couple of weeks, then you'll actually start to reproduce some, some reasonable data. And as you said, The other variables that in the elite athlete spectrum and the AMS and things like this, that they they do monitor really well, like sleep, like nutrition, like recovery um, from from a session, then you, you need to be pretty clear that if as an adult, you're not getting eight hours of quality sleep a night, or as a under 16 year old, you're not getting 10 hours of quality sleep a night, then that is a multiplier to your acute, to chronic workload ratio, and that just means that you're gonna be pushed a little bit higher and therefore a little bit further towards the, the red zone, the injury risk zone above your 130%, um, that could push you into a zone where uh, the likelihood of an injury in the next three to four weeks spikes a little. And, um, and that means you might have to respond to that by changing the intensity or the number of sessions you have in a week or improving your recovery. And I think sleep is um, sleep is the thing that you'd like to think is, a, is available to every recreational athlete, uh, regardless of all of their other potential issues. If you can get yourself enough sleep and then, um, then your recovery is going to be aided significantly, even if, uh, good food is not available to you. Even if um, jumping on a roller or having a soft tissue massage or getting in and doing some um, some some water water based recovery, which is one of the things I recommend pretty highly, uh, cold water recovery is a is a great way to go after a long run. Um, I, I think if those things, you know, if you, if you don't live on the coast or you don't have a pool nearby, then that suddenly becomes really difficult because it is definitely not the same to sit in a cold bath as it is to walk laps up and down in a nice, comfortable, you know, 15 degree ocean. So um, some of those things are not available to everyone, but sleep is available to everyone. um, And I think is as a result, probably the most effective recovery tool uh, in being able to modify the multipliers to your uh acute on chronic workload ratio yep uh, and I, th- I think that's an important thing for, for everyone
0: that's good i like that too we'll talk talk a little bit about recovery i guess so you know you see uh splashed over instagram people in ice baths thinking they're doing something um are they doing anything or are they just putting a photo up on their feed
1: yeah, I mean, I like I, I like those photos. I'm always keen to see people sitting in ice baths. It makes me giggle a little bit. Um, I think I think the, the the evidence is still not very strong for an ice bath. Um, I think that there are um, there are better things you can do. There are worse things you can do. Um, and I think the reality is, uh, I saw. Uh, a couple of elite sport clubs have just got um, a recovery menu, for want of a better word, where uh, we, might, we might give you a, a whole bunch of different points depending on what you do. And, and, and again, we don't really want any one recovery technique to be the only thing that you ever do. We do want you to mix it up a little bit. We do want you to feel like there are different things that work well for you. Depending on the session that you've just had, so if you've if you've had a pretty high intensity, you know eight nine out of ten uh, RPE over forty five minutes because you're doing hill repeat um, sand dune hill repeats, for example, uh, then your your the 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 amount of um, damage. Uh, for want of a better word, that you're doing to your muscular system to drive it to repair in a bigger and better state and build capacity um, is is high. It's way higher than going into a you know a six minute k trundle um, over over a, a, a five or six k distance. Like it's it's uh, the things that you need to do to recover from those different kinds of runs. Are, are, are immense. And so if we are creating um, high volumes of uh, muscle metabolite in a high-intensity, um, shorter-duration session because you can't do a high intensity, long duration session, it'll, it'll kill you. Um, but if you're doing that kind of thing, then the recovery is different from just sort of turning your legs over, right? And um, and that might be that you go and sit in an ice bath for a bit. It might be that you do a contrast hot and cold um, and it might be that you jump on a roller to try and flush out a little bit of that metabolite. My go-to personally uh, has always been just get in some cool water and that's either a, an ocean pool or the ocean itself uh, and, and, and walk a few, few laps and, and you've probably got to be in there for 15 or 20 minutes before it's effective for you, but you are making your muscles do something and it's not heavy work by any stretch of the imagination, but you're getting them to pump and turn on and turn off and, uh, and you're in a medium that is, is pretty supportive. And it's also um, uh, therefore reducing your body's overall inflammatory load from a high workload uh, output. And that, that should, um, on an individual basis, give you a degree of recovery. That is, you will get some points from your recovery menu, um, but the whole lot. Will be, um, will be gained by also maintaining adequate nutrition, maybe making sure that after a, a high intensity effort like that, that there is adequate protein in your system to make sure that the muscle damage that you have evoked by doing that kind of a high load session has got um, uh, at, at very least the group of amino acids that you can't synthesize yourself has been in, ingested in your uh, your recovery menu after that kind of an effort. So there needs to be some protein put into the system. There needs to be some electrolyte put back into the system. There was a time uh, when I did some things with the, with the FFA um, back in the day, again, in the sort of mid-early 2000s, uh, where we used to do a urine test on every one of our players after they came off the field and see... What the the concentration of their urine was like. And we'd weigh them to see how much they'd sweat it out and say, rightio, well, here's the electrolyte balance that you need to drink before you go home tonight. And that's another form of recovery that had some scientific merit behind it, but it's certainly not the only thing that you would do. Mm -hmm. So, replacing fluids, replacing electrolytes, replacing proteins in in heavy, high load uh, situations, doing some hot and cold type therapy, jumping on a roller doing some trigger point release, uh, and and then making sure that you have adequate sleep are all parts of an adequate recovery. And um, again, while I like sleep, because it's available to everyone, all of those other things are perfectly appropriate, depending on what session you've done, and what your particular body responds to well. So Uh, again I'd like to stress there's not a one size fits all for these things there's not a you do this session you need to do this as a recovery Um, but but there is a group of things that you can do to make sure particularly if you're looking at hitting up with another session in the next 24 hours that you are as well prepared for that as you can be and certainly at the elite athlete end of the spectrum we're talking about training daily if not twice daily so Mm -hmm. so recovery becomes a really really important part of that
0: yeah that's good and I I guess you know, like I say, there's there's a variation in what you can do, but the take home message is do something. You know, don't just sit there. Hundred percent. Don't just sit there at the desk for the rest of the day and expect you to be recovered
1: for. The following
0: session, um, yeah, yeah, because
1: uh, because that kind of rest is actually not ideal. We we don't want that at all. We want, if if anything, it's an active recovery. Um, and sitting around thinking that you're recovering by sitting at a desk all day, um, you you are 100% kidding yourself. So I think I think that's probably the the, the take home message for the uh, weekend warrior come uh, recreational athlete is that is not a recovery session. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that's no, good. Uh, somewhere on the uh, the menu of recovery, was, was beer included? Did that give you a certain amount of points?
1: Depends on who makes that beer, <laughs> uh, which is no. where I'd like to put a little plug in for the the, the crew up at Mountain Culture in uh, in the Blue Mountains. <laughs> I'm not they sure... They make what the cheeriest, tastiest, <laughs> the cheeriest and tastiest uh, meepers I've ever come across. They are
0: delightful. I agree, I agree. Um, so we, we, we've take that big big ticket item that's good um i I want to talk about a couple of i guess specific components to injury and i I don't want to use the depends or individual kind of stuff but if you give us a little brief overview of what running injuries they might be useful for in terms of your clinical experience and the the evidence base at the moment um how often are you seeing anti-inflammatory, oral anti-inflammatory use in, in acute injuries now? Are you you using that a lot or is it uh are we shying away from that kind of treatment these days?
1: Uh, I think again, you know, obviously there is there's a broad spectrum of answers to that. I think there's a time and a place for them for sure. Um, I think in um uh, what we'll call acute overload injuries, right? So, so uh, particularly, let's let's take that fifty to sixty year old to, to be a little bit more specific. That fifty to sixty year old um, uh, male runner who ends up with with an acute thickening around his Achilles tendon after stepping up his load uh, over. Um, of the, uh, over the course of a week where he's, let's say, for example, doubled his load, his acute on chronic workload ratio has been blown out of the water. He's up over 200%. Um, and all of a sudden, he, get, he wakes up the next morning and he's got a, uh, Achilles pain. He looks down, he's got a big lump in the middle of it. Really common story. We see it all the time. Um, and if there is um, if there is excessive fluid and swelling, then I am not opposed to a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory oral uh, over two to three days, mm-hmm. but that's all. I, w- I would never, I would never take it further than that. And I think it's worthwhile saying that if you're on the wrong side of thirty, which you and I both are, and you have an acute muscle strain, like whether that's a, a, a twinge in your calf or a, a tear in your hamstring, or even just a uh, you know a football player with a, a twinge in the quads. I think that that, in, that end of the spectrum does not require a... I think we've got enough evidence now to say that they, those people do not require a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory um, orally or topically applied. Mm-hmm. I think I think we're seeing that those muscle injuries, and if you don't know if it's a muscle injury, for God's sake, so go and see a professional who can tell you. Um, but I think... Those muscle injuries have been shown to be driven a little bit more towards a fibrotic repair than a sort of a normal scar remodeling repair uh, if we stick anti-inflammatories in the system early. But they're not really the ones we're talking about. I think they're the ones that probably need to avoid a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. I think in those overload type injuries like the 56-year-old male with a fat Achilles, I think those guys, if they have If they've developed a lot of fluid, um, I think they will feel better to try and to to get a nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory in the system, uh, and um, and reduce that first 24 to 48 hours worth of inflammatory mechanism. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, we're pretty clear nowadays that it is it is not a tendonitis, meaning inflammation of a tendon. Uh, that we used to think that it was. It is probably more an acute inflammatory change superimposed on a chronic degenerative change Mm -hmm. uh, in the tendon itself. And that chronic degenerative change is is not inflammatory in mechanism at all. It is a a change in the structure of the tendon itself, whereby... um, as far as I'm aware, and I, I, I keep up with this stuff as much as I possibly can, I, I've come across three things in the literature that actually uh, improve this uh, chronic degenerative tendon structure. The first one is available to everyone at its load. Uh, we, wanna, we wanna put load through those tendons in a way that they are not under too much tensile load. And also not under too much compressive load in those acute circumstances, and again, that that does mean just consult a professional, talk talk to somebody about where you're at at the moment and which phase of exercise your particular tendon injury um, is up to, uh, because it does it changes quite quite readily, and if we want to get you back working quickly here uh, in, a, in a load capacity and not have to take a, an enormous amount of load away from you because it lengthens the, the time it takes to get you back to, to the capacity that you want, then the sooner you get that loading capacity right, the quicker you're back doing what you want to be able to do. So early on, uh, we talk about isometric loading, uh, which is where the tendon is in a not compressed, not lengthened state, but is taking load. Uh, and so think for your, your Achilles tendon guy who's got a big, thickened, uh, fat Achilles, that means just holding, holding your heels two centimetres off the floor. You know, if you're, if you're up on end of row, end of range, sorry, um, calf raise, then you are compressing your Achilles tendon. And if you're dropping off the back of a step, then you are tensioning your Achilles tendon We want it in a slightly shortened from neutral because it's a nice, comfortable place for a tendon to be, but we want it taking loads. So we want you holding your heels off the floor. Uh, And there's been some great work done by the the people down in Melbourne um, on on, uh, the the pain relieving mechanisms of long duration isometric exercise on things like Achilles, Achilles tendons. Um, I think we've settled now on, on uh, four or five repetitions of 30 to 45 second holds with your heels just off the floor where your, your Achilles is in a slightly shortened but not too short range, um, showing great responses in pain immediately. And if we improve your pain like that immediately, then we can improve your function immediately. And it doesn't mean you can just go off and run again, but it does mean that you can walk normally without making a compensatory step strategy uh, and, and therefore, be able to move on to the next phase, which is eccentric, concentric loading, in in a um, in a non-irritating range of motion, sooner rather than later. And so, this loading paradigm is it's not quite the same as the the acute and chronic workload ratio type stuff, but it is about making sure that the load that you are putting through uh, are what we call what we will call an injured tendon or tendinopathic tendon. Um, early and in the the, uh, the middle phase, and then in the late phase, does change, and it gets you back to doing your loading as quickly as possible. So, the, I don't want to say just load, but a specific kind of load, depending on where you are in the spectrum of your tendon injury, is the first and most available option for recovering from a tendon overload injury or underload. I should add. The second thing that we know um, from, um, from these tendon injuries and from our, from our research is, is that we're, what we're trying to do with load is to stimulate the tenocytes, that, uh, which are the cells that live around your tendon, to start spitting out more collagen and to stimulate them to do that. Load is one way. Uh, the second probably most available way, if I can put it that way, uh, is, is a thing called shockwave therapy Um, a lot of uh, sports physicians and physiotherapists and allied health professionals have got access to shockwave therapy machines. Uh, There's some pretty good uh, and a growing body of evidence that shockwave therapy, uh, not on its own, but coupled with an appropriate loading program will maybe even speed up. The rate that these tenocytes start switching on and spitting out your collagen and and, and rebuilding for one of a better word the structure that we're looking for in a healthy tendon um, and and so we we use that more often in some tendon injuries than other ones and, and certainly in insertional Achilles tendons uh worker john orchard and his group over in uh, in randwick in sydney have have done some uh, have shown some really good changes with the addition of shockwave therapy uh, to um, uh, to Achille- particularly insertional Achilles tendon injuries and uh, insertional plantar fascia injuries. Uh, and then the, the third thing that we see, are uh, seeing sort of, I guess, uh, a growing body of evidence for again in our literature is, uh, is a PRP or platelet-rich plasma injection uh, into tendons. Um, and and they're, they're probably the things that I explain to people with these kind of injuries um, I mean, literally on a daily basis. Uh, obviously, going from most available and least invasive to least available and most invasive, um, but but there is a there is a time and a place for these kind of PRP injections, which is essentially an injection of of growth factors directly to the site that we're um, that we're looking to affect. Um, I think there are times that that such injections are overused, uh, but I think they they have like like with most, certainly when I say all, but most other uh, interventions they, they have their their place um, in the in a spectrum of disorders where they can be um, they can be really helpful in a really recalcitrant situation where you're not getting the changes that you would expect, having ticked all of the other boxes and hand on heart, done the exercises that your physio has told you to do and, um, and, and still not making the changes that we want, then we might find ourselves moving into those, the, the kind of areas where we're willing to take on the, uh, the slight but not insignificant uh, extra risk of sticking a needle in you um, uh, for, the, for the purposes of trying to rebuild that tendon structure uh, in a way that hasn't been responding to other more conservative methods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good, and and, and within that
0: spectrum, uh, are we placing cortisone anywhere, or is that uh, off the radar?
1: Yeah, not for cortisone. Oh, sorry, not for tendon injuries. I think um, I think uh, we've got a we've got a good body of evidence now that says that if anything, cortisone in tendon injuries is probably damaging. Um, or at very least, uh, a, a a placebo kind of effect. Sorry, that that's the wrong word. I think I think that it probably, on account of the fact that when it's delivered, is delivered with, with a, um, uh, with a pretty potent potent analgesic. Uh, analgesic that you get a pain relief effect, mm. um, but cortisone, cortisone itself, its effect on tendon structure. Uh, has been shown to be uh, more deleterious than helpful, uh, so we we tend to shy away um, unless unless we are really confident that the thickening that we're seeing around your Achilles tendon, for example, is purely a tendon sheath, tenosynovitis, acute inflammatory change in the sheath around the tendon, rather than. That accumulation of fluid within the tendon structure itself, which again is um, is a relatively simple test to do for uh, your allied health professional, then 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 I don't think cortisone has a place in these things mm-hmm. uh, because I, I think again it's it, it can be quite damaging to the tendon structure itself and um, from an uh, acute pain sense um, because. There's a local anaesthetic stuck in the mix with it. It can be useful, but it's it's not actually going to help the tendon itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Just a break in the pain cycle potentially.
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's pretty much as good as it gets for cortisone and tendons. Where we're talking about tendinopathic change, uh, there are other things that I think cortisone definitely has its place in. Uh, a subacromial bursa loves a cortisone injection, for example. Um, those acute inflammatory circumstances, uh, cortisone is a potent um, steroidal anti-inflammatory delivered to a site, can, uh, can bind those inflammatory molecules and prevent further uh, exacerbation of, of, of the inflammatory soup that, that can accumulate in these sort of circumstances. But we've, um, we've got some really good evidence now that within the tendon structure itself, um, it is it is not inflammatory certainly outside the first 24 maybe 48 hours if you're lucky it, it is not inflammatory in nature mm-hmm. and and so an anti-inflammatory um, by extension is not useful not
0: helping no that's good but you spent a uh, a little bit of time being physio for the biggest loser tv show uh is there anything we can learn from uh from your experience there on loading the body appropriately?
1: Oh, mate, for, for I, I think, again, we had lots of discussions around that time um, where we're, we're talking about guys who, um, with all respect, were not athletes. Uh, uh, and I think the majority of the, the guys that I came, the contestants I came across on those shows um, would be the first to admit that they were the furthest thing from from an athlete who were suddenly being thrust into an environment, a training environment that was um, akin to what elite athletes would do. They were training several times a day. Um, they, were, they, they certainly had uh, well-qualified trainers to take them through their paces and all of these sorts of things. But um, uh, but if we, if we just harp back on to their, their, their acute versus chronic load, um, they they had they had zero chronic load, and so their acute load on, on on each each week was was definitely going to be breaching their the amount of work they had done in the previous four weeks, uh, and so it was unsurprising to see that the 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 overload injuries that we saw a lot of. We we had a lot of stress fractures. Um, uh, we had we had a lot of tendon injuries. We had a lot of uh, acute arthritic flares from guys who had spent uh, the majority of their life um, uh, 20 50, 100 percent heavier than what they what they should be um, slowly but surely wearing away their articular surfaces and and throwing them into um, uh, a scenario where they're training um, in, in, a, in a volume capacity not unlike the volumes that that our elite athletes and and Olympians for that matter would be training at. Um, I think it was unsurprising that that myself and and the other physios involved were were pretty clear that we were gonna run into some pretty big problems.
0: Big problems indeed,
1: mate. Big problems
0: indeed, yeah. mate. Um, as a, uh, a a recreational runner myself, and, and certainly a, a rapidly aging runner, have you got any tips for my, uh, my my future in in the sport? How how can I bulletproof myself?
1: Uh, I think I think that again the grow. I'd like to first say that uh, you're not, you're not aging that rapidly, and um and recreational runner is uh, is a stretch for you, mate. You're uh, you're a little bit beyond that. But um, but I do, uh, I do think that the answer lies in, in, in strength work, in making sure that there are a few little markers that you try to continue to hit in terms of um, the amount of strength that you maintain in some key muscle groups. and I'm, I'm talking really calves, quads, hammies, glutes, and core uh, for runners in particular. Um, I think that there are some... some Basic thresholds that we like to see for single league calf raises, and there was some good data put out on that back in twenty eighteen. Um, we we do this uh, these these testing um, uh, preseason screening tests for our for our footballers and. You know, these 18 to 25-year-olds in our Premier League squads need, need to be able to hit these markers or, or they need to do some pretty hardcore work in their pre-season to get to that point. Um, and I think outside of um, making sure that there is some, uh, some strength work outside of just running for recreational runners, um, then the other key indicators is making sure that you're not trying to push your load on by more than about 10% in one variable at a time, I think that's the other place that people go wrong, is that they say, oh, well, I ran 100Ks on on this particular run, which might even be, don't get me wrong, no one's running a couple of 100K runs a week, but maybe they've run 100Ks in one week uh, across, let's say, three runs, um, and then they're going to do 110Ks in the next week, which Sits perfectly nicely in in our. We've not increased by more than ten percent in terms of our distance variable in one week. But if you chop that down into its little component pieces and find out that uh, that in one week uh, we did uh, ten um, consecutive, obviously some on the same day, ten k runs versus one one hundred and ten k run versus. Um, a whole bunch of very flat, even treadmill, sprung floor, um, cadence modified on the treadmill because it's just telling you what speed you're going versus trail, undulating, all uphill, lots of downhill. Um, There are all of these other variables that come into what you did to get from 100 kilometres in one week Versus 110 in the next week, that need to be accounted for. So this flat 10% is all well and good as a rough guide, but you need to take into account all of the other variables, even right down to um, uh, the sleep and nutrition uh, that you had in that week. Let alone the the those uh, those external load factors of uh, how difficult the run was, how hard you pushed the run, what pace were you going at. It's not as simple as just a 10% increase. And I think they're the things for recreational runners who don't have the advantage of the AMS or, um, or, a, or a GPS tracking system to tell them what their other variables were, even though you know uh, there's, a, there's a lot more information you can get from things like a Garmin uh, when you're running around these days even outside of that, there's a whole lot more variables that are not being tracked yeah. that um, that we want to just be aware of, I think, when we're increasing things by this blanket 10%, because there are things outside of your your reckoning that might be a multiplier that you weren't ready for. Yeah. So the 10% is a nice little um, nice little safe haven, but you've got to be aware of all of the other variables that go into, into account for that 10%, and again, try and uh, modify only one variable at a time. Um, The acute on chronic workload ratio is a really good way for uh, your recreational athlete to keep an eye on what their load is doing and and be able to get towards the end of a week where they might usually, as most recreational athletes do, do their bigger, longer runs on a weekend and say, well, I'm already hitting 120, 130% of what my chronic load was. So actually, I'll get the weekend off. Actually, I don't need to do a big long run run this weekend because if I do, I'm up over that 130% and then over the next three to four weeks, I have to spend my time trying to backtrack to get down back into my sweet spot again. Um, I'm going to go and do a 30-minute, really easy five-minute K run that gives that as an RPE of something in the order of three so that my arbitrary units are 90, and that is making almost no difference to what my uh, acute on chronic workload ratio is over that last uh, four weeks compared to the week I'm in at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a it's a really good tool to be able to track uh, what your output is compared to your your, your previous month's worth of work. Um, so I think if we if we talk about uh, keeping those those three factors, which is uh, regular strength work and specific stuff for runners, making sure that you're hitting those areas that need to be maintained. Second, not pushing yourself outside of a 10% increase in any week to week basis and making sure that that 10% increase is at one variable at a time. Third, monitor your acute on chronic workload ratio. It's pretty easy to do. I've got an Excel spreadsheet that I shoot out to all of my recreational athletes so that they can just continue to monitor. And it's it's, it's 12 weeks, but by the time you get to the end of the 12 week, you just delete your first bit of data and go back into week one again, and you can keep rolling that data around so that you have a constant rolling average of where you should be trying to work throughout the course of the current week you are in uh, so that you don't drop right off and get below 80% of what your, your chronic load is and you don't spike and get above your 130%. I think it's important when you're talking about acute and chronic workload ratios that you don't panic when you are outside that range, then you're just aware that the next couple of weeks you just need to make some adjustments to make sure you get back inside your range. And I think point four, which um, which we touched on earlier, is the importance of, of an appropriate recovery. Uh, and that includes everything from sleep, to nutrition, to hot, cold baths, to rollers, to massage, to making sure that you are not doing nothing, but you are mixing up the something that you are doing. And I think for you know, If you, you want to call yourself a recreational runner or if you're a lead end of the spectrum runner or if you are literally just a weekend warrior who only gets an opportunity to run once or twice a week, um, there's, there's something in those four components for every um, athlete, no matter what level you're at, to be able to better monitor what you're doing if you're purpose is training for an event, or if your purpose is general fitness, or if your purpose is to increase capacity, uh, there are ways to do all of those things safely um, uh, amongst um, those, that keeping track of those, I guess, relatively easy to track ver- uh, variables where you don't need uh, GPS and fancy equipment to do all that sort of stuff. Um, I think that makes it a lot more available for, for your average Joe and... Um, and we we love the average Joe runner. Uh, they're, they're they're the guys that keep the world going round, mate. We do too. They're the ones that listen to this podcast.
0: Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully for us. Um, yeah, I mean, hopefully,
1: I haven't just talked too much to bore the hell out of them. It's, uh, mate, it's there's there's a plenty, problem I have. Plenty of gems to mine in there,
0: mate, for sure. I got one one final question, I guess, and this probably uh, speaks to the more elite end of that spectrum, but. Is, in your opinion, is it, is it possible to be a top class runner and hit the mileage and intensity required to remain at that level for any length of time and avoid injury? Or do top runners need to accept injury as a foregone conclusion with the, the intensity and the
1: volume that they work at? Yes. So, yes. <laughs> so, so even even when we we talk about uh, our preventable non-contact soft tissue injuries uh, and the things that we can research and we can and we can reduce risk on, and we've shown that we can reduce risk on um, in in a number of different fields and sporting arenas, um, the, the the risk reduction uh, still leaves a five percent risk. Mm. You know, we never get to zero so I think it's important to note that um, high volumes of work and and, and and even low volumes of work have an injury risk and if if we' if we're keeping that risk at, at, at 5% or less uh, then we're doing really well but if you're if you're looking at sustaining um, that kind of level of training over a number of years uh, let alone months and Seasons on and off, and and, and again, you know the, um, the 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 trail running fraternity probably don't have as much of an off season as something like the footballing fraternity, for example, or the cricket fraternity, fraternity um, because because it, it, it just continues. There's there's not actually a season, so to speak. Um, I think uh, that it's it's all the more important to manage what we'll call relative rest periods where you are backing off your training, knowing that there's going to be an accumulation phase again, that requires very, very careful planning uh, in terms of this uh, acute and chronic workload ratio and not trying to blow yourself up by more than uh, 10% in any number of variables over the course of uh, consecutive weeks. So um, I don't think you need to resign yourself to the fact that you are going to get injured but I think you need to not panic when you you do get injured. I think there are there are plenty of very capable professionals out there that um, hopefully are on a similar page to what I'm talking about here. Is that uh, when you're you're in that elite spectrum, uh, we don't want to say to any of those people, and even the recreational runners for that matter, oh, we'll just stop running for a while and um, and this will sort itself out, and then we'll start you back up again. Um, I think that's a massive cop-out. And if you're seeing a, a healthcare professional who is, um, who is telling you that that's the way that you need to go, then, then please give me a call uh, and I will tell you what you can be doing because there, there is always something that you can be doing. Um, and, and, yes, it is what we call relative rest for a reason. There is going to be a degree of, of unloading required in some of these overload injuries but that doesn't mean complete rest. Uh, I would say that it almost never, and I say almost because somebody always proves me wrong when I say always, it is almost never required to have uh, a a period of complete rest. Um, Sometimes it is desired. Uh, We have, uh, again, a 2016 paper released by the AIS about this detraining effect and what happens if you do have complete rest and what, we, what we want you to do to gradually reload yourself again after a period of, of either enforced or voluntary complete rest. And as long as you stick to those guidelines, then we know that we've reduced your risk considerably considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, And again, what we're talking about a risk, we're not talking about an inevitability. We're not talking about you must get injured at some point or you're not training hard enough. That's that's complete and utter bullshit. You can get to the point where you have got a perfectly um, acceptable and progressive training regime and not get injured for sure. Um and there are some guidelines out there um uh, that we've talked about today and uh, and and that are uh, so I guess readily available in the right places um to to ensure that you can stay on the right side of that line, uh, or I should say ensure that you minimize the risk of stepping over that line.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. No, it's good. There's hope. There's a little bit of hope. There is there. hope. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like, I like to it. leave with hope. <laughs> well, we will we'll leave we'll leave that with hope. Um so if uh, if our listeners are seeing someone who's telling them to rest their injury and not to anything, how how do they get in contact with you?
1: Uh, I'm um, I'm Steve at mossmanphysio.com.au. Shoot me an email. Uh, we've got to contact uh, contact us on our webpage, which is just uh, pretty stock standard www.mossmanphysio.com.au. Um there's a, always always happy uh, to give some advice and um, Clearly, there's going to be times that we require more than just a rundown on where you're at and we actually need to stick hands on you to assess stuff. But, but by and large, there is some, there's some pretty good load management advice or if, if any of your listeners are really keen on, on grabbing a hold of that, um, that acute on chronic workload ratio uh, spreadsheet, just shoot us an email at that, steve at mossmanphysio.com.au. Very happy to share that far and wide um it's uh it, it's not pretty but it's an excel spreadsheet that works really well doesn't somebody, need to be pretty mate i'd be really happy for one of your um, one of your listeners to shoot me back a version of it that looks pretty flash because my one looks pretty ordinary <laughs> i'm sure there's somebody there. who, yeah, sure. somebody who knows excel better than me
0: that's right there's got to be someone um, and and it's what really about good. uh the the socials you you you're pretty active there i imagine
1: ah uh, look we're not big social media fans. We're out there. You can find us on there. I um, when I do something a little bit exciting, I'll, I'll put it up there. We we do a bit of work with a Pace Athletic Run Group around our our local area, uh, and so we're we're involved with them. We do a lot of work with local uh, community clubs uh, for football AFL uh, cricket here and there. Although their season's obviously well and truly done now, and um, so so you'll you'll see us popping up here and there for sure. Uh, so yes, we have a. Facebook and Instagram, and I'm on LinkedIn and all those bits and pieces. And you'll see a little bit of stuff that we stick out there here and there. But um, yeah, certainly if um, if if it's getting in touch with us that you want, then shoot us an email, find our contact page, jump on the social medias, and and, and find um, find Mossman Physio. That's our. Uh, handle Okay. handle if that's what you call it i'm not i'm not too with these kind of things mate but uh i used to call it an elbow i found out was a handle um, yeah I mean, I mean it could be an elbow it's kind of the same thing you can grab onto either of those well <laughs> right, right, thank you for your time and expertise
0: it's been uh yeah truly enlightening some some incredible gems for uh our listeners to mine out of that i'm sure um yeah, and uh we'll we'll catch up for a real beer at some stage soon. Next weekend, mate. We're on. Sounds good. All right, mate. Yeah. Mm-hmm.